just very traditional, but we're traditional enough, but not quite traditional around here, it seems. <laughs> this year, after thinking through where we are in Romans um, and talking about it on Tuesday, it was obvious that the best text for this evening was actually our sermon series text that we were going to preach on Sunday, Romans 3, 9 through 20. So Corey looked at me and smiled and said, can you do that? And I foolishly said yes, which is uh, quite chaotic. But um, I want us to think together tonight about some things. Things that do pertain to this supper that you're going to get to partake in, the supper that the Lord gave to all of his disciples, his true disciples. For several weeks now, we've been walking through Paul's case against humanity from Romans 1.18, and it ends tonight in 3.20. Paul, like a master prosecutor, has built his case on the abundance of evidence that can be traced through the entire human race. After presenting the good news in 1.16 and 17, when he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it's written. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul then launches out in this case against man. Romans 18, 1.18 is the introductory heading of the entire section of this argument for the total depravity of mankind. He writes in 118, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Man's greatest sin is that he is anti-God in all of his essence. He is against God. And because he is against God, his actions and his intentions and his thoughts are anti-man as he acts out the core of his being. He hates God, and the truth is he loves one man, and that man bears his own name. That's what Paul says to us in the first chapter. Paul begins to unravel the evil that is before him. He's settling the fact that in his opening summation of the problem that man is actively sinning against God. And his fellow man, by the totality of his life, so we can imagine that the defendants will cry out, you can't just say that about us. It's a slander against us. Prove what you're saying. And that's exactly what Paul does, beginning in 119 and following. He says first that he presents this clear and undeniable evidence of the lawlessness of those who live in gross moral sin. The idolaters and godless suppress the truth with their worship of creation and their self-exaltation through sexual depravity of the worst kinds. And he ends in verse 32 when he says that, in summary, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do it, but they give hearty amens to others. They cheer them on. The evidence is clear that everyone who lives in rebellion deserves to die. 
But they not only know death is coming, they don't care and they cheer for others to join them on the path of destruction. Having made his case against the total, totally immoral, Paul then moves into 1 through 11 where he presents his evidence against the moralist. These are the people that look at the immoral and say, boy, I sure am glad I'm not like those people. Those are terrible sinners over there. I judge my life to be pretty good comparatively. I mean, God will surely excuse me because I'm a, I'm a better person. I'm a good person. Paul slams the evidence down on these self-righteous folks. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you not... Do you presume on the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Here we see that while the righteous wrath of God is being revealed in our time against the immoral, the self-righteous moralist is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. When God's righteous anger is poured out on him. Two groups within humanity have been blasted with evidence that's overwhelming and undeniable. The final group of religious men is now scoffing at the fool standing next to them. We tried to tell y'all that your sinful ways and your moral deeds were filthy rags before the holy judge of heaven. Amen, Paul. Amen, brother. Tell them how bad it really is. And Paul looks out and says to these, these Jews, these religious people, with outward signs of the covenant, already applied to their bodies, making them Jews, Circumcision of the hands is meaningless unless the Spirit circumcises your heart. The circumcision that is performed by the Holy Spirit through the work of jury generation is all that matters. So at this point in the case against mankind, Paul has lumped all of humanity into one category. All mankind is totally unacceptable to God because whether you are sexually immoral to the max, fairly pure sexually except the occasional slip-up that you justify in your morality, or you're a self-righteous, pure, sexual person in your body, yet your spirit is without the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter which of those subsets of humanity you live in. You are convicted in your natural flesh of ungodliness and unrighteousness. But it's at this point that the defendant in this case cries out with four great objections to all of this arguing that Paul has done. And Aaron showed us this past Sunday the objections are each swatted down by Paul. The advantage of being, having the oracles of God becomes a disadvantage when you continue to sin without true change. Second, he says, the Jewish failure into unfaithfulness does not make God any less faithful. He's true and every man is a liar. 
Third, God's not unjust to punish mankind for his unrighteousness, even though it's against the black, bleak, black, (laughs) bleak, and that's not speaking in tongues, bleak, black, backdrop of unrighteousness that makes God judging the world so right and finally continuing to do evil so that good may come is the fast track to just condemnation. The judge has all the evidence before him. He's heard all the objections answered. There's quiet before the bench of heaven as the apostle picks up his pen to write his closing argument and pronounce a verdict. So let's read the text. Verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Hold on to that because I know you're, you're thinking, yeah, we're better off, just like they would. Because he said it earlier. We're better, we're, yes, there's advantages. Look what he says. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is the righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their use They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Maundy Thursday brings us to the brink of the suffering of our Lord. We see Christ in his final earthly hours enjoying a final meal with his men in the upper room. Maybe you or someone listening to this sermon is still asking the question, Why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? Because all humanity is completely depraved and unrighteous to the center of His natural being. All of us, every man, woman, and child in this building, watching at home, listening to the internet, all of us, and listen to me, All of the men sitting around the table that are going to take the supper with the Lord are unrighteous in their sin and rotten to the core of their natural man. Not just one, all 12. That's why Jesus went to the the cross. Here's what I want to do. I want to show from the Word of God that there's not one exception to the sinfulness of men by trying to pull these two stories together. The final argument of Paul and his argument against all men and the picture of our Lord in the upper room and the men that shared the meal with him. First, everyone is in the same position before the judge. Everyone is in the same position. We are guilty. Look at verse 9. 
Paul asks this question, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he gives a resounding answer. No, not at all. Jews and Gentiles stand before the judge of heaven and the judge of earth guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 18 in chapter 1 laid the case, really. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, the vertical sin against God Almighty and unrighteousness, the horizontal horrific effect of your sin against God against your fellow man. The wrath of God is revealed against it. We all stand guilty of it. We all stand in front of the judge. Sinners! Second, in this passage in verses 10 through 12, we see the character of man is displayed. Here we see the phrase, as it is written. When you read that in the Apostle Paul, he's going to quote the Old Testament. And boy, does he ever. We get a catena of verses right here. A hodgepodge of psalms shoved together and the words of Isaiah to finish it off. So that in a way, he's saying the whole Old Testament tells us the same story. It's not that he went and found a few proof texts here and there. It's all over the Old Testament. Men are sinful. And he chooses the verses wisely because... He is talking to both Jews and Gentiles, and had he stayed in the law, the Jews would have felt condemned, and maybe the Gentiles said, that's not about us. But he chooses the Psalms, a Jewish man writing about the condition of his heart and the heart of every man, and he chooses Isaiah when Isaiah thunders against both Jews and Gentiles in their sin. Paul's a masterful man, and the most intelligent man besides Adam and Christ to ever walk the earth. He builds his case about the condition of man right here in these verses. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He Inclusio, he covers the whole thing. Not one. No, not one. He wants you to know, he wants me to know that we cannot escape the trap of our own worthless condition. We are all sinners, every one of us. When you ask the question, why did Jesus really have to die on the cross? You need to answer the question, because of me. Because of me and my sin. You are not righteous before God. You are unrighteous. You are the opposite of righteous. God has a standard, and that standard is himself. It is displayed through his word and the law. And in the law, he will not lower one iota one jot of the law. It stands immovable as a testimony of who God is. And he says, the only ones who will come into my presence will be righteous just like me. Do any of us dare stand before him and say, I fit the bill. I passed the test. Don't bring your flimsy excuses nor to this bench bring some second substandard law. God's not judging you by your thoughts. He's not judging you by the thoughts of others. He's judging you by his own character. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody can understand some things about the world, science, medicine. It doesn't mean that you can't know your trade. It doesn't mean that you might not have a high IQ. What it says is you can't understand things spiritually. You have no way to assess the way God assesses things, appraise things according to His Word. In your natural self, 
You are ignorant, foolish. According to spiritual things, you're a novice. You have no hope. You do not understand. Not only do you not understand, you don't seek God. You don't seek God. Oh, but you say, I do. I have a lot of spiritual interests. I really, I really do want to know God. I mean, you don't know me very well, Carlton. You're saying things, you know, that I know Paul said it right there. No one seeks after God. I know he says that, but I, I did. I seek after God. I want God. We've built whole services in the evangelical movement and called them seeker-sensitive. The problem is the people showing up are not sensitive, nor are they seeking. They're hard in their hearts and dead in their sins. Just like me, just like you before Christ. If you think you'll get someone to come to Christ by being kind to them and ignoring their sin and telling them about how much you love them and accept them, you may very well be patting them on the back as they go down the hill towards damnation. Paul says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one. No one seeks God. No one has understanding. And finally, in this verse 12, he says, we're all spoiled. We're all ruined. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't explain this. was the best I ever heard read. He said, it's like you got a cup of milk to pour in a little creamer into your tea at 2 o'clock. Your mouth is watering for it. And you take your first sip of tea and the milk is spoiled. You have gone out of the way. That's what it means. It's spoiled. It's rotten. You ever tasted rotten, clabbered milk? No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. You're as rotten as spoiled milk. That's the condition of man. Now we see and move on to see what he does because of his condition. What does man do because of his condition? Everything we've talked about so far is pretty much internal. Now we're going to talk about externals. In verse 13, he describes, Paul does from the Psalms, the mouth of mankind. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. The natural man is a man with a mouth that smells like a two-week-old dead person who has been left out in the sun. That's what his mouth smells like when he talks. Spiritually, before the Lord, a stench rises. Not only is his mouth a grave, that's bad enough, but it's filled with lies. Lies, half lies, white lies, lies that get you out of trouble, lies that make you look better. Not just lies. Some of you in here would say, you know, I stopped lying when I was a kid. My mom beat me hard enough. I stopped that. Don't worry. All grown folks flatter. And flattery is a lie. That's telling somebody something you don't really mean to make them like you. Because remember, you're only worshiping you. You're not worshiping them nor God. You're worshiping yourself. Why do you flatter your friends? So that they'll love you. So they'll think you're the greatest. So they'll think you're above all else. Their mouths are like open graves and their tongues are filled with deceit. And the poison of the venomous cobra is behind their 
tongue. It's a very naturalistic explanation that the Psalms give us. The most poisonous snake of the day, the fangs hinged up into the mouth, and when they swung forward to strike, the fangs came down and punctured on their way down the poisonous asp, punctured the, the sack of poison which flowed like a needle into his victim. People died quickly, painfully. That's what the mouth is like. It's untamed, it's unbridled, James says, and Paul says it's full of rotten dead men's bones, lying and flattering and filled with poison, which will destroy everything. Paul's built his case about lies, and then he moves on to say it's not only what you say, it's what you do. Verse 14 says, I mean, excuse me, verse 15 moves on to say that you shed blood. You're quick to do it. And in your path is ruin and misery. You say, oh, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a murderer. Paul, Carlton, that's not me. But Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you have murdered him. So are you a murderer? Paul is saying that who we are flows out through our speech. Jesus made the case when he said, what comes out of a person defiles him, not what goes into him. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And Paul closes his argument by saying that at our core, we are ungodly and unrighteous. It's displayed from our speech, and it always starts with thoughts and words and continues in our actions as we hate all those around us. And we don't know what it looks like to be at peace because, verse 16 and 17, ruin and misery have led We've been led to ruin and misery because we do not know the God of peace, enjoy the peace that is found only in God in our souls, and therefore we can't seek peace with our fellow man. Any movement that purports to have peace on this earth is a lie if it's not founded in the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any movement, any political movement, any 501c3 any movement that says we will have peace with our fellow man without Christ is a lie. And if you buy it, you're following them into no peace. You can't have peace with anyone until you have peace with God. And you will quickly shed blood as long as you're outside of a relationship with the living God. There is no fear, Paul says finally, as he closes in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's answer to the root of all of the sin of man is that he has no proper respect, reverence, awe when it comes to the king of kings, the king of heaven, the king of earth. He has no proper respect, no proper awe, no worship. That's what it means. That's what the Old Testament said from beginning to end. That's what the wisdom literature concludes every time, no matter the writer. We don't fear God. So he's made his case. He's answered the objections. He's given the verdict. We are all unrighteous. He closes it down by saying guilty. Look at verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. You notice it says under sin and it says under law. <clears throat> You're under the obligations of the law. As long as you are not under Jesus Christ. 
Either Christ will fulfill the law for you or you will be expected to fulfill all of it yourself. And therefore, if you are outside of Christ and under the law, you are under sin. Sin is your master. Sin is your God. And it will demand and take from you all that you have until it takes your very life. The guilty verdict is pronounced in verse 19. So that every mouth is stopped and the whole world may be held into account with God. So then he finally, finally closes verse 20 and says, listen, the law was given for a good purpose. So that no one was left justified by the works of the law, but rather they came to know that they were sinners. The giving of the law is one of the most gracious things God does in the Old Covenant. He gives us the standard. Have you ever tried to hit a standard you didn't know you were trying to hit? Like, what if, what if your coach in baseball handed you a ball, then you knew nothing about the game and said, just throw it? <clears throat> well, what's the objective? I just throw it. Well, I don't know which way to throw it. Just throw it. So you started the game that way. You kind of look around, and it's like there's a lot of people out there, so I'll just throw it over here. Everybody laughs. They throw the ball back. And you wander around, and finally somebody says, that bump over there. You walk over and get on the bump. You're looking around. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Nobody's ever told you. You just kind of throw it. It hits the backstop. Everybody laughs. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's ridiculous to us. Aren't you glad God didn't do that? God said, if you will dwell with me, this is what you will do. This is what is required. He told the rules of the game. He told the demands of it. He told the requirements of it. He told the method of it. He told everything there was because he's a gracious God. And he didn't want us out there just throwing the ball around, not knowing the objective. Every human, whether they're under the law of Moses or they're Gentiles under the natural law, knows that the game is simple. Be just like God. And then you can come into his presence. And everyone, Paul says, Jew and Gentile, has failed to meet the standard. We're all guilty, and that's what the law was for. It was to show us our guilt. Show us our sin. Convict us of our crimes. And so I mentioned at the beginning, <clears throat> this is how I want to close before I bring Corey up quickly to close us out. What does the upper room have to do with this? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Because in the upper room we see the character of God and the character of man on full display. Twelve men had followed Christ for three or a little over three years. And then he said, it's almost time for the dinner. It's almost time for the Passover. I want to celebrate it with you. Take this money and go and secure the room that I've prepared. And I will come there and we will eat the supper together. And they went and got the room and they're ready. And Christ has made ready the table to share with them for the Passover. And as they arrive, his guests... They notice as they're talking, he's taken his outer cloak off and he's wrapped himself with a servant's towel and they're confused. What's he doing? And he stoops down and begins to wash their feet. 
And they're taken back. And he gets to Peter and he starts to wash his feet. And he says, oh no, Lord, never. Don't wash my feet. Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you remain unclean. But then not only my feet, Lord, all of me. I'm fully a sinner. I need you to cleanse me. And Jesus says, no, you're clean. You've touched the world with those feet, and I'm just going to make them clean for you. We see the character of God in the fact that he prepares, he plans, and then he serves. We see the character of man because they don't want God to serve them. They couldn't dare to think that he would stoop this low. But see, unless Jesus is serving you, then you remain guilty before the law. Jesus said, I didn't come that you would serve me, but I came to serve you. And so after he serves, he sits down and they enjoy the Passover meal with great meaning. And Jesus, I can't help but think that Jesus is playing forward what's about to happen as he takes the lamb, which is prepared, and he thinks, that's me. And he eats it with them, and he talks with them, and he says, listen, right here, sitting at the seat, my friends is one of you who will betray me because the Scripture has said so. Because the Scripture said, he who sops bread with me will betray me. They immediately did what we would do, like all humanity. It's not me, is it? I don't think, no, I'm not, it's not me. I mean, I'm pretty, I doubt it. Don't you doubt it? You think I'm good enough? I'm good enough. And Jesus looks at Judas and says, Go and do what you do quickly. And he leaves the room without any notice. Because, see, Jesus fenced his table. He wouldn't offer his body and blood to one who was not his. Jesus leaves the table, leaves the room, and sells our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Thinking, I'm doing God a favor. I'm getting the Messiah to act like a Messiah and stand up and defend us. I'm going to provoke him into it if I have to. But he was filled with the devil. He was the son of perdition. Jesus starts to serve the bread and the wine, giving them his very body and blood. And then he does this. He says, now, Peter, before this day's over, before this night finishes, friend, you're going to deny me three times. Never. Pride. The arrogance. <clears throat> Not me. If everybody else leaves, I'll be here. Can't you hear the Jew from Romans in Peter's voice? Oh, they might all see him, but I'm a good, I'm there. Can't you hear the moralist crying out? Oh, you must be mistaken. Somebody else, I'm a pretty good guy. Jesus says, Judas, the devil's asked to sift you like wheat. And I'm praying for you. Our God prepares and plans and serves. And then he prays. And gives us his body and his blood. Sinners, convicted, guilty. And yet he says, you're mine. I chose you. Out of all the people, I chose you. You're mine. Eat with me. Drink with me. And remember me until I come again. What separated Peter from Judas? What separated him? 
Have you ever thought about that? They do the same thing. They both betray Jesus. Let me tell you what separates Peter from Judas. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, gave his body and blood that Peter might eat and drink and live. And then having died and paid the price and raised from the dead, he has established Peter and he returns to heaven to pray for Peter forever that he will never lose what he has given to him. Stop telling God you're not guilty and get on your face and say, I'm guilty. Stop telling God you have rights and start telling God you have all the rights. You're sovereign. Stop telling God that you're good enough and tell him I'm not good enough. Because when you do, he washes your feet. He serves you his body and blood and he prays for you without end. That's the difference between the Peters and the Judases. That's the only difference. It's not their characters. It's not their being, their humanity. That's the same. It's the Savior. That's the difference. And that's what we celebrate on Monday Thursday, is that our Lord, knowing that we are guilty before God in heaven, said, I give you my perfect flesh and my sinless blood to eat and drink forever. To eat and drink forever. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, prepare to take the supper. We pray, God, that we take it with renewed meaning. That you, our God, would give your flesh for us. Oh, can it be? Oh, can it be? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I do think, uh, thank you so much, Carlton. This is a fantastic text for 